Online scammers. Those are great people, aren't they? I've heard tons of stories. I actually know people who have been scammed out of thousands of dollars because they are taken advantage of by people, whether online or email or phone calls or text messages or even people who come knock on the front door. But wouldn't it be wonderful if scammers actually just told you what they were up to? They call you on the phone, hi, I'm Tony. I'm here to take all your money and I'm going to give you nothing in return. Wouldn't that make it very simple, right? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it make it simple? It allows you the opportunity to make a wise and informed decision, and it allows their intentions to be made known so there can be, uh, if conflict necessary, there'll be uh, both parties know exactly what the other one's trying to do, and therefore we can come up with the best option. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't that be great? Right? It wouldn't be unreasonable on your side to suggest that, hey, that'd be nice if things work that way. Uh, but they don't, do they? Scammers don't usually call you uh, to tell you exactly what they're there to do. On the other hand, they use subtle word manipulation to give you just enough plausible reason to take them for their word, and that's where it all goes downhill, right? Just the, enough honesty and enough, enough subtlety in their manipulation to get you to do exactly what they want you to do, and then boom, you're duped. You're taken advantage of uh, because of someone's use of word manipulation. Maybe you aren't an online scammer. Right? Maybe that's not, not who you are. Maybe that's not what, what you've done. Uh, but I can imagine there's been a time uh, in your life that you've utilized word manipulation to get what you wanted. Right? Maybe you've used word manipulation, subtle, the subtleties of casuistry of language. Maybe uh, you've uh, subtly manipulated your resume so you could get a job that you know, according to the job description, you don't meet the requirements for, but a little word manipulation here, a little word manipulation there, and voila, I'm the man for the job. Or perhaps you may be someone who's used word manipulation to get out of an event that you had previously committed to without being completely honest. Really, to get what you want. Really, so that you would be vindicated while the other party is left with less than complete and total honesty. You see, maybe we're not scammers in the technical sense of the word, online or otherwise, but many of us deal with scamming people with our word manipulation. And this is where Jesus goes in the text this morning, that in Matthew 5, 33-37, where I want you to turn in your Bible with me this morning, Jesus addresses this exact problem with the crowd there as he's preaching the most famous sermon in history, the Sermon on the Mount. And as you're flipping there, it'd be worth noting this main point of this morning's sermon, which is this, that God's displeasure with word manipulation should cause you to think carefully before making frivolous promises you are not committed to keeping. It's really, if you keep that point in mind, you're going to be able to apply God's word this morning in a way that's going to change the way that you will communicate, the way that you would make promises going forward, and perhaps keep you from being someone who utilizes word manipulation to get your way in causing damage in the wake behind you. So here in this morning's text, I would love for you to look with me at Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 33. Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Well, these aren't, he's not taking an exact quotation from a single text, but uh, he is compiling the, the main idea, the central idea of a number of texts and a theme that we find in the Old Testament uh, echoed over and over again, particularly in two verses. Uh, one, Numbers 30, verses 1 through 2. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. 
he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And then a second text would just be one of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 in verse 16 that says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That is, uh, for us older people, that means don't lie. For us younger people, that just means no cap, right? We're going to be honest, right? We're going to tell people the truth of the matter. We're not going to use subtle language to deceive and manipulate one another. And so we see that Jesus is bringing us to a particular application when it comes to the way that we tell people and commit to people promises and vows and pledges. So what's the problem here, though? What is, what is the problem that Jesus is directly uh, applying his word to? Well, the prevailing idea at that time was this, that if one swears by God the oath is binding, right? If one swears by the name of God that the oath was binding, you actually saw that, you heard me read it to you, in Numbers 30, in verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, he is bound. And so here, their thought about this, their application of this would be like, if one swears by God, the oath is binding. But this is where they begin going wrong. They also decided that if someone swears by something else that is not God then that oath is not binding. The rabbis then, from this improper exegesis of the Old Testament, words on vows and commitments, took this exegesis and misinterpreted it, and then the rabbis created a long list of reasons why an oath was not binding. Do you see the, do you see the problem with this already? They created a system in which a person's word was not as it seemed as they spoke it. This is a problem. This isn't just an ancient problem. This is a current problem we live in today. But this is a particular problem Jesus was addressing. And last week I introduced you guys to an ancient uh, document called the Mishnah, which was the oral tradition of the Jews. Well, I want to whip that back out this morning to show you just how much uh, they had institutionalized this, uh, cons- this uh, misrepresentation of the Old Testament and this manipulation in the Jewish oral tradition. So in the Mishnah, in the Nidarim, which is a section of the Mishnah about law and oaths, in chapter 6, starting in verse 9, we have the rabbis spending a lot of time creating loopholes so people were not held to their word. For instance, you're going to get a kick out of these. He who takes a vow not to have wine is permitted to have apple wine. He who takes a vow not to have oil is permitted to have sesame oil. He who takes a vow not to have honey is permitted to have date honey. He who takes a vow not to have vinegar is permitted to have vinegar of winter grapes. Now we're saying the kind of grapes that just don't grow the time that the normal grapes are grown for vinegar. I got two two more. I'll give you one more. He who takes a vow not to have vegetables is permitted to have wild vegetables since they have a special name. You see, they have codified the definition of what Jesus is addressing. You make a commitment with your word, and yet now we're going to create this system to where you're not actually held to your word, and there are many reasons why you can get out of your word based on the systems that man had put in place versus what God's word says about us keeping our oaths and our promises. This is the problem that everyone had in that time, and many people have in our time using subtleties casuistry and our word manipulation to get our own way by taking advantage of other people or at least not holding up our side, which is taking advantage of another person because you get your way and you're leaving them out to dry. You see, Jesus addresses this more explicitly in a way that you and I, upon reading it from the surface, which we might not be able to do from verses 33 through 37, we can clearly do that in Matthew 23 verses 16 through 22, and I'd encourage you to flip there because Jesus is is addressing the same exact problem just later in the book of Matthew, much like last week we talked about divorce and remarriage, and later on in Matthew, Jesus addresses it at greater length in chapter 19. We see a similar situation here where Jesus addresses something in the Sermon on the Mount, and he gets into greater detail later 
in the gospel account. Here in Matthew 23, verses 16 through 22, you see in one of the woes to the Pharisees, Jesus laying out the problematic concept of oath-keeping and promise-keeping in the time of the Pharisees in the first century. Here's what Jesus says. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Do you see that? How ridiculous that sounds? Right? We're, not held if, we're not held accountable if we swear by the temple, but if we swear by the gold in the temple, then we're bound by it. And Jesus says, you blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, verse 18, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. You see, two things Jesus addresses here. Number one, you're all being deceitful. Why would we ever say when a vow is valid or invalid based on what we swore by? Only if we wanted to lie and get out of something by word manipulation. That's the only reason we'd ever want to create these systems to where if I swear by this, I'm not accountable to it. Why? Because they would want to use it to swear by it and unsuspecting people who don't understand all of the rules and all of the systems in place would take them for their word. And then when they're either taken to court or get in a heated discussion, then the person who's trying to manipulate can say, see, here are the rules. I can swear by that and I'm not held accountable to it. Do you see the system of manipulation that was put in place that Jesus is outright condemning? If we do a lot of this in our own time, by trying to use extreme logic and saying, knowing that you're wrong, but trying to connect the dots in a, in a roundabout way where you can figure out that you're right, even though you know at heart you're actually wrong. And you could say the truth, and you can be right about it, but you're using it to manipulate someone when you know that your heart was in sin and you need to turn from it. It's the same problem that we deal with in our own time that Jesus is outright condemning. I told you firstly. Right. Secondly, this reality of promises and commitments is Jesus doesn't outright condemn any and all oaths here. That's not the problem that we're finding here. What we're finding here is they were manipulating any kind of situation by using an oath and using a promise to get their way, even in the smallest situations. So I want to set up a landscape here so as we look into the text, you can recognize where we've come, where we are, so that we can go somewhere that's going to be helpful for you when you apply this word to your life this week, which brings us to the thrust of Jesus' teachings. And Jesus says in verse 34, so I say to you, do not take an oath at all. And again, I just said a minute ago, Jesus isn't outright condemning all oaths. You need to understand in the text, like last week when Jesus said, chop off your arm, right? Chop off your hand, gouge out your eye. We understand that Jesus was using uh, expressions of speech. Jesus was allowing us to understand the seriousness of this problem while addressing the heart problem. Here, we have the same thing. Jesus is saying, listen, if you're going to manipulate Using your oaths and your vows and commitment, you ought not to make them ever at all. As a matter of fact, he is telling people to reject using oaths in a certain way. In a commentary I, I listened to, they had put it in a great way. Jesus is condemning second-class oaths, second-class commitments. Right? We're not like some cults and some groups of heresy. Uh, they won't take oaths in court. They won't take oaths on their wedding day uh, because they take this text and not understanding it properly, they say, I'm never going to make a promise or oath at all. When we saw earlier, Jesus in Matthew 23, not only was he talking about oaths that were being made improperly, we also see in the text in Romans 1, 8 through 9, Paul is recorded as making oaths. God, even in Hebrews 6, 13 through 17, is recorded as making oaths. So if we're going to be able to connect all of Scripture and believe in the authority of Scripture 
and believe in the veracity of Scripture, we're going to have to make some, some, some decisions here, some educated decision in hermeneutics to say that either Jesus is saying we can't make any vows and oaths, and so therefore any oath and any vow made in all of Scripture is wrong, or we need to understand the situation Jesus is addressing here and move forward from there, which is what we're going to do this morning, to recognize they were using oaths to manipulate people for their own benefit and at the detriment of other people. And so Jesus says, do not take oaths at all, either by heaven, remember, if they vowed a vow by God, they were bound to it, and so often they tried to make vows around things about God, the things that could get closest to God without actually being accountable to that situation. So I can't say God, but I can get really close. I can say heaven. He says, we're not going to be making vows by heaven because why? It's the throne of God. You're trying to distance yourself from God, but you don't realize that every word you invoke is actually invoking God's ruling authority over it. So you're saying that you're going to swear by heaven. You got to realize that's God's throne. He says, oh, don't swear by earth. And Jesus says, because that's his footstool. You don't swear by Jerusalem because that's the city of the great king. That's the seat of the king of Jerusalem, the city of David, who the Messiah will sit on to rule and to reign God's creation. So you trying to separate yourself from this commitment, you're actually proving yourself foolish, not realizing that that's all God's. And by you trying to keep God out of it, you're not realizing your foolishness that you've actually brought God into it, thus condemning yourself because you make frivolous promises that you're accountable to God to, and you're going to be condemned by God by doing so. And so here... As I've said, they were taught that only vows made to God were binding, and they made vows to objects that were not God. And Jesus points out this flaw in his logic by using one attribute of God, his omnipresence. And if you don't know that word, write it down. It's a really good Bible word to understand, to utilize when you're learning about who God is. God is omnipresent, which means what? That God is everywhere all the time, that God is always there, God is everywhere, and everything belongs to God. He's omnipresent. It's his, he's everywhere, all of these things belong to him. And so the flaw of the Pharisees were to recognize that everything that they're saying belongs to God, even the people that they're trying to manipulate are God's people. Which is why he even says, do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black What is Jesus appealing to? Their utter helplessness under the power and sovereignty and control of God. I mean, and we read this in 21st century and say, no, I make my hair all separate kinds of colors. But you don't because what do you have to do six months later? You have to recolor your hair. And you you recapitulate that process over and over again because at the end of the day, you understand one thing very simply and true, don't you? You can't change the color of your hair even if you try to do it superficially because at the end of the day, it's going to come back, which should remind you, you have no control over anything in your life. That's God's and his alone. So we better off not be swearing by things we can't control because all of it belongs to God. Really, I want you to sum that up in point number one. You need to recognize that every commitment is made in God's presence. For you to think about this in your own life that every single commitment that you make, every single vow, every single promise, every sim- every, even all the word manipulations, the casuistry that you would use, uh, whether it be you try to manipulate a situation, gaslight a situation, uh, try to tell a half-truth so you don't have to tell the whole truth, all of that is made in the presence of God, and you cannot escape it. It's really... The summation of Psalm 139, isn't it? Psalm 139, it says this, starting in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and, and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Oh, that the Pharisees would have paid really good attention and the rabbis and the people of that time to recognize I can't say anything where God's presence is not there and where I'm not accountable to the holy God exalted into the heavens. Then he says, even before a word was on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Isn't, 
Isn't that revealing? Before a word was ever on my tongue, you knew it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. Then he starts, he transitions from his, the, the personal, his personal being to the creation that God is ruler over in verse 7 when he says this, Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. How about if at that time, and even in our time, if we take that text, how would that inform the way that we make vows and promises to people? When somebody knocks on our door and asks us for sugar, can I have some sugar? No, I don't have any. I mean, I have some, I just don't want to give it to you, and that's the plain truth. And it actually says a lot more about my heart than you're asking. I'm sorry, and I repent for my sin. Yes, I'll go get you some sugar now, right? That's what a text like that should do, correct? Because at the end of the day, we recognize that Psalm 139 tells us that God is intimately involved in everything in our lives, and we're also accountable to God as our Father and as our holy, exalted God in the universe, and we need to, unlike many people in that time that Jesus was outright condemning, we need to take serious that God is present in every commitment that I make and every manipulation that I try to create in my relationships with others. Really, you need to recognize you're always seen by God and you are accountable to God for how you communicate. You are, you and me, are accountable to God for how we communicate to people. Matthew 12 tells us that exact fact. Matthew 12, 36 and 37 say this, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. There's a reality that all of us, as we speak in the presence of God always, because he is omnipresent, that we will all be also accountable to the words that we speak and give an account to God on the day of judgment. Of judgment. And it's with that judgment in view that I really want to get us into the practical application of this sermon in a way that's going to change the way that you interact with people and the way that you think about God in you making vows and commitments and promises. And I want you with that judgment in view, right, the fact that we're all going to be accountable to God, with uh, the fact that God is omnipresent, with those things in view, I want us to then read the rest of verse 37. It says this, because of all these things before that we have just talked about, here's how you need to communicate. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Doesn't that really fix everything right there? Jesus really gives us a simple solution to the problem. We have word manipulation going on. We're breaking covenants and vows and promises because we're trying to create a system in which I can get my own way. And if I'm really good with my wordsmithing, I can create a way where I always win and you always lose. Instead, Jesus says, here's how we're going to fix this. We're going to go back to what Scripture says, and we're going to say yes, and we're going to say no. Because that's what a vow and a commitment actually does, doesn't it? A vow and a commitment, according to the Old Testament, is just when you say yes, you mean when you say no, you mean, all right, are you held to that commitment? Yes, because it's a commitment. Jesus isn't abolishing all kinds of vows and oaths and commitments. It's saying, hey, let's get this back where it was. Your yes is yes, and your no is no. And for us, the fight against manipulation starts with a simple approach to commitment. And this is something we need to apply. We can apply this 100 different ways to Sunday. And since today's Sunday, I won't spend 100 different ways to do it. But for you to know, this is for you and me today. We have to recognize this. It's so important that the brother of Jesus, James, in uh, his letter in the New Testament, in chapter 5, verse 12, says this, Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. What do you mean under condemnation? Well, we talked about the condemnation of manipulation 
and the condemnation of you knowing that you haven't told the whole truth and you're utilizing uh, the half-truth so people will look at you the way you want them to look at you versus the way that is actually honest and transparent that may not put you in the best light, but is the transparency in which God commands of all people. If we all told half-truths, we all walk around wondering who's being honest and who's not. What kind of church does that breed? What kind of world does that create? We have to be people who utilize the simplicity of, and honesty of yes and no. Yes and no. Are we going to say maybe? No. We're going to say yes and we're going to say no. Right? Does that mean I have to be prepared in my conversations when somebody invites me to something and I want, and I, I know I don't really, I don't want to go, uh, but I don't want to offend them. And so I say, let me think about it. No, we say, hey, uh, I, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Is that pretty clear? Right? And it's not because I don't like you. I just, right now, I, I don't want to go to that. So my answer is going to be no. But I would love, perhaps, to put something else on the calendar in the future. Could we, could we approach this again three days from now? You see that? The, simp- the simplicity and the clarity there in our promises and commitments? I got more, but we'll stop for there right there. Let your yes be yes and your no be a no. Another way of application here is communication should not just be for your own validation. I want you to pay attention to me. I want to explain something to you. Communication should not be for your own validation. And this is how we often use communication to manipulate. You use communication as a tool for you to share how you feel, share how you think, get what you want, keep things away that you don't want. You utilize it as a tool for you. I know that I have to communicate to get what I want, to tell people what I think and how I feel. That's how we often think about communication, isn't it? It's about me expressing myself. The problem is, if that's our main view of communication, we lose sight of gospel communication. We lose sight of how God wants us to utilize our communication and our words for his glory and for the good of God's people. Your communication should not just be for your own validation. It should be for those you communicate to. Right? Not for as in just you're trying to communicate uh, for them to understand you. I don't mean that. I mean your communication should be for them. It should be a proponent of them. It should be for the good of those people. Right? It should be for the mutual upbuilding of that other person. Do you understand the distinction here? It's not just for me to tell people what I feel. It's for me to set them up to communicate back in a way that helps them feel that they can communicate clearly and honestly. Why? Because you've communicated clearly and honestly. And if we're going to communicate with the simplicity of yes and no, a principle we need to take is our communication should be a proponent of those we communicate to for them. Because loving communication has the aim to allow and forward people the opportunity to understand exactly what you're saying simply and clearly. It should allow them to synthesize that information, to take simple, honest communication that you are giving them, and then for them to synthesize it, them to chew it, them to to understand it in a way where it goes from here to here, and then it allows them from that point to respond back to you properly. We kind of can see now where a lot of conflict happens, don't we? Because we don't communicate as a proponent of the other person. We communicate as an opponent of the other person and a proponent of ourselves. And so it actually is, uh, it's for us, when we think about communication being just for me, it's actually beneficial for me in that worldview and that's that idea of communication to not speak clearly to the other person because I don't want them to win. I'm a proponent of me. So if I'm clear to them, then that means maybe what they say is better than what I say and then I lose the situation. Does that make sense so far? Are we on the same page? We have to recognize that our communication, the simplicity of our communication and our commitments, yes and no, allows people to be honest and it allows God to win. And what I mean by God to win, I mean the way that God has designed human beings to flourish, which is his design wins. The way that God has designed us to relate to one another with clarity and simplicity. So we need to communicate as a proponent of the person we're communicating to, not their opponent. All right? And when we communicate in that way, manipulation is not in my repertoire, right? 
Wordsmithing is not the goal of my communication. The simplicity of letting my yes be a yes and my no be a no, and then giving you the opportunity as I give something to you for you to be able to respond in a yes or no type situation. Now, Jesus isn't saying be short with people. You know, hey, you want to go hang out with me? I really I re- haven't seen you in a long time. Would love to go hang out. No. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that you need to have simplicity to your commitments and your communications with people. And you also need to recognize, like you will if when you go over your devotional questions this week, because we don't have life group, you will recognize that Philippians 2.3 tells me exactly how I should be making commitments. You should consider other people as more significant than yourself. If I'm considering other people more significant than myself, and if people invite me to go do something, and I believe they're more important than me, what is my usual answer to, to their ask? Yes. yes. Do you see this? Yes. And so what this actually does is it changes you. You understand? You listening to the word of God changes you. It makes you be more clear. It makes you sacrifice your own preferences for the good of others. It allows you to reflect the character and nature of Christ who gave himself for us and said yes to take our place even though it was inconvenient for him. Welcome to Christianity. Welcome to our faith expressed through our lives because we're just going to simply and clearly, sincerely communicate. And that's point number two. You need to communicate simply and sincerely. In your outline, write that down. Communicate simply and sincerely. Uh, this is our problem with car salesmen, isn't it? Right? I mean, if I think, if I could define a car salesman, it would not be, you know, they communicate so simply and sincerely to me. The minute I walk in there, I'm like, I, it just, just oozes clarity and simplicity in here. Like truthfulness just is written on all the walls. And that's not the case often, is it, with, with car salesmen, is it? Like, you know they're not telling you every single lie. You know 50, 60% of what they're telling you is probably true, but you live with a presupposition with a car salesman that what? They're lying somewhere, right? There, there's some lies going on here. And so how does that cause you to live your life within the conversation with the car salesman? You're on edge, aren't you? You're having to read between the lines. Well, friends, in the church, we don't, we don't need to read between the lines. We got work to do. We got people to share the gospel with. We got ministry to do. We got disciples to make. The last thing we need to be doing is looking at each other and trying to read between the lines of our relationships. We need clear Defined relationships. We need simple communication. And I don't, want to have a, I don't want to have a church that looks more like a car dealership. Or we're trying to negotiate our relationship based on wordsmithing. We need a church where we're going to say, I'm going to be simple and sincere in my communication. And I don't want to function in this church where I've got to wonder what you're thinking. And I've got to wonder where your heart is. And when you tell me something, I've got to wonder, is that really what they mean or do they mean something else? Because scripturally, biblically... We don't live to deceive. We live to have simple and sincere communication. And there's promises in Scripture for those who do. I mean, 1 Peter 3.10 is a great one for you to jot down in your notes. 1 Peter 3.10. It says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days. Anybody? Is that anybody in here? Right, you want to see good days, right? You want to love the life that God has given you? Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. You know, one of the biggest problems that, that I see in counseling and just even in the church in, in general as we live life, uh, there's not a lot of people here who just want to create problems, okay? I've noticed that in, in, in counseling. whether it's marital counseling or uh, interpersonal relationship counseling, you know, it would be easy if I got in there and one person just says, you know what, I just want to just let you know before we start this, I'm actually here to create problems. Like, I'm the issue. You know, the problem is that's not how people think usually when they're trying to follow the Lord, okay? Most people in counseling, I find, don't want to create problems. They, They would like to be a part of the solution. Oftentimes, they're not living to be a part of the solution, And one of the problems that we often see is this. They have not kept their lips from speaking deceit, okay? And there are two ways this happens. One, the one we like to define categorically as just open deception. Like, I'm lying, and I'm just flat out lying. I'm lying, and there is, I'm picking no bones about it. 
That's the category that we all can understand and define, but there's another category of speaking deceit that we need to recognize as really important and uh, really uh, an invasive species in our church. And it's this kind of uh, deceit that is, well, if they just knew my heart. I'm, I'm telling them, but it's, it's if they just knew my heart about the situation, they would understand that I'm not actually trying to commit problems. But the problem is, you won't communicate clearly. You won't approach people to clarify communication. So instead of being a peacemaker that we've talked about a few weeks ago, we're those people that I'm going to be a peace faker and I'm going to evade the situation. And so by evading the situation and saying there's not really any problems, what am I doing? Right here. I'm doing this. I'm speaking deceit. I'm speaking deceit because even though I know in my heart there is problems, I will not simply address them sincerely. Instead, I want to brush off everything like everything's okay, but in the real world, everything's not. And so what happens in the church is 60% of the congregation says, I'm all right. Well, I'm all right with them. But yet other people and guests walk into our church who are looking for a home church, and they say things like, I just, you know, everyone says everything's all right, but if this is what all right feels like, I don't want to be all right. I don't want to be, I don't want to be part of a community that, that's like, they all seem like they'll wave at each other, but it doesn't really seem like there's a family here. Why? Because in category number two, we are speaking deceit because we aren't communicating clearly and simply. And although most of us could say, well, I didn't mean to do it. I didn't start this. I didn't, I didn't want to create this problem. It doesn't mean that the problem isn't there and needs to be addressed simply and clearly with considering the other person is more significant than yourself. How would the church be if we lived like that? Come on. I mean, how would your home be? Let's just start there, why don't we? Okay. We need to communicate in a way that reflects God's character of honesty. Right? We need, if God's honest, I want to be honest. And this is going to get real apparent towards the, at the end of this sermon as we're getting closer to the conclusion here. You need to understand how important it is for you to reflect God's character in his honesty and the way that God is clear. Don't you love it that God's clear in Scripture? I mean, he just tells you this is the standard. You never have to wonder what, what, what God's standards are. You read Scripture and you're like, I may not like those standards, but they're very clear in sight. I love a God who doesn't use word manipulation to get me to follow him. I have a God that says, you are separated from me at birth and you are a child of my wrath and I am a holy God, exalted in the heavens, and you have no lot in my kingdom apart from the righteousness of Christ. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Pretty clear. Very honest. But yet he still loves me and has sent his son to die for my sins that I could have a lot in his kingdom. It takes simple and clear communication for reconciliation and redemption to happen. And that's biblical and that's also relational as far as my salvation goes and my interpersonal relationships go. We need to communicate in a way that reflects God's character. We communicate simply and sincerely in part because of the end of verse 37. And this is where things get real stark in contrast to what we have just spoken about. Right? We got to speak simply, letting our yes be yes. We got to speak simply and sincerely because what? I mean, what is the consequence here? Right? What is the problem in communication? What's the problem in the church? What's the problem in my marriage and my relationships? What's the problem in my relationship with my grandkids when I am not being simply and sincerely communicating, considering them more significant than myself? Verse 37 tells me exactly the problem. Any other thing, any other way that you would communicate, any other tools that you would use come from evil. Anything more than this comes from evil. So this helps me understand why I have to reflect God's character of honesty. And i got to be clear with, like God is clear. Because I recognize if I'm not reflecting the character of God... I'm utilizing the tools and the character of evil. We, in our neglect of simple and sincere communications, invite reflections of Satan's schemes in our lives and in our marriages and in our church. 
Why do I say this? Because when we use subtle manipulation to get our way, we reflect the exact character of Satan as Scripture defines Satan's character. When we manipulate and we try to get our way and try to get people to do what we want them to do without being simple and honest, we, as defined in Scripture, clearly reflect the character of Satan. John 8, 44. John 8, 44. We have Jesus talking again to the Pharisees. And he tells them, you are of your father, the devil. It's pretty bold, isn't it? You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth. There it is right there. Satan's whole character is based on the fact that he does what is a lie. He does what is to the detriment of other people to get his way. Because why? There is no truth in him. Listen to this. This is where it gets real clear that we're talking about the way that we speak. When he lies, listen to this. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. So when I am being deceptive and I'm using word manipulation and I am not being completely honest uh, so that I can either get out of a situation I don't want to be in or maybe get into a situation I want to be in, whose character am I reflecting? Satan's character, right? That's who you're reflecting. This is why honesty and sincerity is so important in the Christian life, because if you aren't reflecting the character of God in honesty, you are, by default, and the antithesis of honesty and integrity, you are reflecting the, the character of Satan. This is a problem, isn't it? When he speaks, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies, and when I find myself lying and deceiving, I find myself following the father of lies and displaying the character of Satan. So if you want to take this whole thing seriously, which I hope you do, I mean, I hope by this point in the sermon, you're like, I really got to change the way I communicate. I really got to change the simplicity and the clarity and the sincerity in which I tell people the truth in which I let my yes be yes and my no be a no, that you would want to do this. And it's point number three that you want to distance yourself from satanic practices. You need to distance yourself from satanic practices. And you may be thinking, Pastor, that's a bold point number three there, right? Satanic? I mean, I know like occult things. Like, you know, I know what they're trying to do to our children. That's, that's satanic. Well, there is nothing more satanic than being a deceiver and being a liar, because that's exactly how the world got into the situation they're in, if you can remember Genesis 3. You remember Genesis 3? Before I take you to Genesis 3, let me give you this quotation from Revelation 12 that shows you how God thinks about Satan. Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon, that is Satan, right, that was thrown down the ancient serpent, which brings us to the illusion of what we see Satan uh, taking the form of in Genesis, that ancient serpent who was called the devil, right? If we had any doubts of who this was, there it is. And Satan, listen to this, comma, the deceiver of the world. Right? This, this is him, his character. Who is he? According to God's word, he's the deceiver of the world. And if that's in macrocosm, who Satan is, and in a microcosm, I'm being the deceiver of people, the deceiver of individuals, and I'm being deceptive, then I am just in a microcosm reflecting the macrocosm of who Satan is and always has been. Does that, does that give you a little bit of unrest in your heart? It should, because that's what Scripture does, and this is why Jesus outright condemns this and condemns the Pharisees for being fathers are being children of their father, the devil. But here's some good news, if you want to read the rest of Revelation 12, 9. This deceiver of the world, he was thrown down with his angels and thrown down with him. And they're going to be, as we read the rest of Revelation, thrown into the pit of fire, into hell for eternity. That's where, that's where they go. It's good news for us as Christians. But in the meantime, we've got to recognize that as Deception is a reality of the character of Satan. We've got to start rethinking the way that we communicate, which a couple of things I want you to do in a way of application. The first thing I want you to do 
is reject communicating with our ulterior motives in view. If we could do this, imagine your life if you would reject any kind of communication that has ulterior motives in view. Okay? When you want to go to the store, imagine, I'm just going to make up something off the top of my head right here. If you want to go to the store, and what you want to do is as you're going to the store, you want to, this is me, I'm going to make up a story about me that I won't do. And you drive by Best Buy because you want a Nintendo Switch. And I'm driving by HEB and told Kayla we're going to the store, but I'm like, why don't we stop here and look around? And then I go into Best Buy, and I'm like, I wonder if they got those Nintendo Switches here. Kayla, what do, you, do, you think, do you think they have a Nintendo Switch here? And I go back to the game area, and I'm like, you wouldn't believe it. There's a Nintendo Switch here. Honey, we're here. I mean, what are the odds that we would be here, right? What are the odds that we would walk in here, and we've been talking about this Nintendo Switch for two weeks, and now we're here, and look, there's one left, one. Can we get it? Can we get it? She's like, I thought you said we were going to go to the store. We're going to go to the store. After I get my way, the whole reason we even got out. Oops. Do you see the problem? Does that little bit of levity prove a point here? We, we, can't, we can't be satanic in the way that we utilize deception to get our way because of exactly what Satan did. We can't, use, we can't communicate with ulterior motives, even if you say, quote-unquote, it's harmless. I'm sorry, none of it's harmless when you are reflecting the character of Satan. Why? Because isn't that what Satan did in Genesis 3? I mean, Genesis 3, Satan didn't come out and, you know, walking along, right? Because he had legs at that point, right? Biblically, at least historically, right? Uh, and he goes up to Eve and says, hey, here's the real thing. I have been cast out of heaven for just evil and grave disobedience from God the Father, exalted in the heavens. I've deceived him. He cast me down here to earth, and here's what I want to do. I want to deceive you. I want you to come with me and my angels. It's not what he did, is it? If he did, wouldn't that have been a great opportunity for Eve to say, I love one, Satan, loved how you were simply and sincerely communicating, but I'm going to have to say no, okay? That, right? I mean, even if we communicate that way, even sin could be clear and, and ran away from, right? But that isn't how it works, is it? Instead, what we have is this. Hey, did God really say that you would die? Did he really? He just knows this, that if you ate that, you would be like him. That's, and that's, that's partly true, isn't it? We are like God in knowing good and evil, right? Knowing things that we were ignorant of beforehand, we wanted to be like God, and Satan wanted to deceive us. And so what did he do? Used subtle word manipulation. He did not keep his lips from speaking deceit. And so I recognize when I'm speaking with ulterior motives in view, what am I doing? reflecting the character of Satan. And I've got to distance myself from that if I'm a Christian. And last, I'm going to try to apply this in a way that, that's helpful. Right? You should also not let ignorance fool deception. Not let your own ignorance fuel deception. And I see this happening, and it is hard to define. That's why most people are ignorant. Because of most people, if they knew what they were doing was deception, they would no longer be ignorant of it. They would just be outright sinning. But this, the sin of ignorance and deception is always at the end of it saying, well, I didn't realize I was being deceptive. Well, I didn't know that I was being deceptive. Well, see, the problem with that is, like, you don't care enough about knowing how you communicate. You don't care enough about ensuring that the way that you communicate is simple and sincere. And so if we're always appealing to ignorance as the reason why I'm being deceptive, we still need to recognize that it's wrong and it's sinful. And even if I'm not meaning to, I'm still reflecting the character of Satan because I'm still being deceptive. Here's a good news for you. In eternity, we're never going to be ignorantly deceiving anybody because there will be no character of sin in heaven. So you got to make sure in this juncture in our, in our life, in our time here on earth, we're weeding out any kind of deception, even the deception that I was once ignorant of. Why? 
because I'm going to dig around and I'm going to look for areas that I may be ignorant of in my own deception so that I can move from reflecting the character of Satan, even in my ignorance, to reflecting the character of God in sincerity and clarity and the way that I'm going to be honest and transparent so that I can allow my yes to be a yes and my no be a no. I'm not going to communicate with ulterior motives. I'm going to work diligently to not be deceiving even in my ignorance. Because why? Because we care enough to first think and then speak. We care enough about others because we want to speak as a proponent of other people that I'm going to make sure that nothing that I'm going to say is going to be deceptive or uh, harmful for them. It all comes down to this. Like as a Christian, if I'm aligned with Christ, I'm going to communicate like Christ. If I'm aligned with Christ, he saved my soul, I have the Holy Spirit that lives in me, I'm going to align my communication with the way that Christ communicates. And if he tells me how to communicate by letting my yes be a yes and my no be a no, and I say I'm Christ and he is mine, I'm going to communicate with a yes and with a no, with other people's benefit in mind to the glory of God. Let's pray. God is my sincere prayer that this sermon would change our church in the way that we communicate, in the way that we utilize our vows and commitments that we do make that are not second-tier commitments, that are, that are ones that are necessary. I think about all those going through premarital counseling at our church right now, and all of those who stand before the church on stage who committed their children to the Lord. I think vows and commitments worthy of making. But God, my prayer is that even in the one-on-one communication and the small group communication throughout our church that we would not use casuistry and subtle manipulation, that we would not uh, create avenues for uh, Satan to thrive in our church, that we would reject uh, and distance ourselves from any satanic practice uh, when it comes to the way that we communicate to manipulate. And I pray that even if we're ignorant of it, God, that you would bring that to light, that in a real truthful, honest way, that you would use other people to bring uh, any uh, ignorance in our life to light, that we'd be able to address it clearly. And I pray that as our church applies your word to our lives, uh, God, it would really, it would, it would cause our church to have freeing relationships that reflect our relationship with you, that we'd have relationships uh, that deepen and have deep roots because of the fact that we could never create hurdles and boundaries in our relationships uh, by deceit and by trying to get our way, and that everyone here would recognize that other people see them as more significant than themselves, and that we would see them as more significant than us. And as we live in that mutualistic reality of care for one another and bearing one another's burdens, we never have to worry about the kind of manipulation that characterizes the world through their father, Satan. And so, God, my prayer is that this changes us greatly. And even as we close in worship, God, I have a prayer that we would sincerely worship you with our words this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.